Uh, we just want him to make his ways clear to us, and we want to be open to what he has for us. I'm, I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, we've been in a teaching series uh, for the last few weeks that we are calling Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. How many of you have been here for all four big questions so far? All right. Um, if you're like me, you've had some big, hairy, audacious questions about the Christian faith at some point in your journey. And if you are a skeptical person, or even if you would say you're at the very least a little skeptical about a few things about the Christian faith, or maybe you found yourself in conversations with friends and family members and coworkers who are skeptics, who have all kinds of really big questions that have kept them at arm's length from Christianity, maybe you want to just get to better equipped so that you can engage them better. We're really glad you're here this morning. I think there's going to be something here for all of us. If you've been following along, you know that a few weeks ago, um, I, I put out an email and I posted on Facebook that we wanted you to send us your biggest, craziest, most difficult questions about the Christian faith. And we wanted to hear the questions that you're hearing from your uh, skeptical, unbelieving, unchurched friends and family and co-workers. And you responded and you sent in nearly 40 questions. And these are some of the big ones. These are the most difficult questions that you wrestle with uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And these might be questions that your unbelieving friends are wrestling with, too. So we've taken these questions and, uh, that you've submitted, and, and maybe I've added a couple of my own, and we've put together this series, Big, Hairy, Audacious Questions. And so far, just as review, we've talked about, can I really trust the Bible? That was part one. Then in part two, we asked, how can Jesus be the only way to God? Which is a great question. Question three was, how can loving God send people to hell? That was a light, fluffy, feel-good morning. And last time we asked, can we know the will of God for our lives? And if so, how? And we answered that once and for all. And that's, that's kind of the whole agenda, is so that in 45 minutes, we can just finally answer the big questions. And when you leave here at the end of the series, you'll have no more big, that's not it at all. The idea is that maybe... Uh, Hey, if your mind has changed, that's, uh, that's one thing. Our goal is, here is for us to just have, have opened our minds. So if you've come in and, and had a question, and this, uh, this question of the day resonates with you, if you and if, through the process of listening and exploring, your mind is open to truth, then that's what we hope to accomplish. So we've been exploring these questions about uh, these, these big questions that have been asked of Christianity, and, and they're not new questions. These are not recent questions, not just in the last few years, but since the very beginning, uh, since the beginning of the church. Um, and chances are, most of these questions have marked your life one way or the other, either positively or negatively at some point. And so these last few weeks have been, they've been pretty interesting and fascinating for me to do the preparation and to engage in conversations. And to, the feedback I'm getting is awesome. The small group dialogue that some of us are having has been really interesting. So today's question is a question that keeps coming up in the discussion of Christianity and churches, and how we relate to each other, and how we relate to culture. And we're going to, by the way, we're going to talk a lot more about that idea, about relating to culture in a few weeks' time, uh, as we near the end of this series, whenever that might be. But this question comes up again and again, and it bothers you. It bothers you if you're a Christian. It bothers you if you're not a Christian. It might even be a reason that you stayed away from church at some point in your life. I'm, I'm kind of curious, how many of you had a period in your life where you stayed away from church? Maybe you were in church at one time, then you weren't in church, and you stayed away. I'm just kind of curious. That's, that's pretty interesting. So um, maybe this question has something to do with that. The way I'm going to phrase this question for today is this. Why on earth are Christians so judgmental? Oh. <laughs> 
we have assumed that they are. So we aren't asking, are they? We've accepted that. We're asking, why are we so judgmental? Why are we so judgmental? It's a great question. And some of you submitted questions that kind of sounded like this one, so I'm kind of uh, lumping some of your questions together under this one category. So basically, why on earth are Christians so judgmental? I've heard it asked like this, how can so much judgment and hate come from a religion that is based on love? I've heard it asked that way. Um, Isn't God love? Isn't Christianity about love? Then why are Christians known to be some of the most judgmental people on the planet? Maybe the reason that you stayed away from the Christian faith and from church for sure for so long at some point in your story is you're like, I know non-Christians who act more Christian than most of the Christians I know. Ever been there? I feel a lot more accepted by non-Christians in my life than I do by most of the church-going Christians that I know. And it's a real good point, and it's a legitimate argument, and there isn't a very good defense against this point because, for the most part, it's just true. So how can so much judgment and hate come from a religion that is, and from a faith that is said to be based on love? Or maybe you've heard of something like this. Why does the church and why do so many Christians feel like it's okay to judge someone who engages in certain kinds of sin. And we're going to look at that, and here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about judgment, and then we're going to look at why it's such a tricky teaching to integrate into our lives. If you're a Christian, you know, why do you struggle so much with judging and forgiving and extending grace and jumping to conclusions and all that? And then we're going to look at what you can do if you're a judger, because here's the reality. I'm a judger you're probably a judger too. There's something inside you, because some of you have been around, just around here long enough to now qualify as a church person, okay? And I know that church people, self-identified church people, pretty good chance that you're a judger. Because there's something inside you, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, there's something inside you that makes judgments. Uh, sometimes that's a pretty dark place. You look down at someone, and from... From somewhere, there's a little voice that that says, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I'm better than that whole group of people. I'm smarter. I'm more successful. I've got my life more together than they do. What do you do with that voice? We're going to look at that. How, if I'm a judger, and I think most of us have some of that in us, let's just be honest. Some of us, some of us have a little bit, and some of us are accomplished, expert, professional, world-class judgers, Okay. <laughs> So how do we stop judging? All of us at some point have been on the receiving end of judgment. Often that's come from the Christian church. You feel it in the little things, you feel it in the big things, and some of you inside the church and outside the church, you've been judged because your marriage fell apart. You've been judged because you confided in someone about a habit or an addiction. You've been judged because of your sexual orientation. You've been judged because of what you believe or don't believe about God. Some of you have thought over the years about getting involved in a small group where you can really connect with people in a, just a deeper level, but you're terrified of opening your, your mouth because you'll reveal how little you know about the Bible and you'll think these super Christians who go to small groups are going to, you know, they're going to judge me. And that's why you're terrified of community or intimacy. So why on earth are Christians so judgmental? Our tendency to judge has alienated us from a lot of people over the years. 
this is a real convicting quote by Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous 19th century German philosopher who was, he was actually the son of a Lutheran pastor in, in, uh, who died when, when Friedrich was five. But he said this, he says, I'll believe in their redeemer when the Christians look a little more redeemed. Mahatma Gandhi, this quote is, anytime you talk about uh, judgmental attitudes within the church and within Christianity, this, this quote comes up. He says, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Tough to argue with that a lot of the time. So in this series, we've been trying to answer these big, hairy, audacious questions with another question. Because sometimes the best way to answer a really difficult question is with another question. So today's question, why on earth are Christians so judgmental? How do we respond to that? First of all, um, I don't think there's much of a defense. I think a good response to that question is, here's the question that we're going to answer the question with. What if Christian judgment betrays God's acceptance? What if Christian judgment betrays God's acceptance? Now, if you're not a Christian, I don't know everybody in the room, and I don't know everybody's story. If you're not a Christian, you get to sit back and relax for the next 40 minutes, okay? You get to just observe and see how we handle truth when it's directed at us. If you're a Christian, let this whole thing bother you. What if my judgment, what if your judgment, what if our judgment, individually and collectively, of other people, actually betrays the acceptance that God has offered us? What if, in fact, you are accepted by God as you are, and my judgment of you gets in the way of you experiencing God's acceptance? That's heavy. Thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say about judgment. We, I could just do a whole series just on Christian judgment, but I'm pretty sure that the crowd would dwindle by about week two. And we could look at a passage, passage after passage, and we could look at Jesus' teaching. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, do not judge. And, and, uh, he, and he did say that. And then he said something that scares me. He said, in the same way that you judge, you're going to be judged. And so when I have these thoughts in my mind where I might be better than, or I might be more spiritual than, or I might be closer to God than, or at least I don't have those problems, or at least I'm not hung up on that. Jesus is saying, how would you like to be judged that way? And that's where we all just go cry out for mercy. No, 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 that's not fair, Jesus. Have mercy, Jesus. Well, why is it fair for you to judge other people then? Because what if my judgmental uh, attitude and my judgment of others betrays God's acceptance? When you judge, you're judging someone who God has already accepted. Not because they're especially good people, not because they got all the check marks on the thing, but because they are made in his image and Jesus died for their sins and he loves them. And my judgment of them betrays God's acceptance. Again, there are a lot of scripture passages we could look at this morning, but check this one out. Just, just read this one and, and let it keep you up tonight. This is a very famous passage uh, on judgment in Matthew 18. <clears throat> and in this passage, Jesus is talking about how to resolve conflict as a Christian. And he says, if you have a conflict with someone, you go directly to that person. <laughs> I just think about that for a second. You don't whisper about it over coffee at church um, with anyone who will listen. You don't go into a lengthy, very detailed prayer request in your small group or in your circle of friends. 
You don't broadcast it in a mysterious cryptic status update on Facebook. You go directly to the person with whom you're having a conflict. Oh, Todd, I could never do that. I'm just not comfortable with that. I don't think I'm wired that way. That's too confrontational. I understand why you get excited about it, but I'm not wired that way. I don't think I could ever do that. I just can't have that conversation. Well, I guess if you can't have that conversation, then your only other option is to let it go. Because Jesus didn't say, go directly to the other person, unless, of course, you're uncomfortable with that. Because, you know, I, Jesus, you know I, I would never ask you to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. You know, I mean, are you kidding? Jesus ne- it's like Jesus never asked us to do anything that isn't uncomfortable. I think he hates our comfortability, honestly. I really do. And if you've been around church for a while, and different churches have their own culture on this, but eventually you hear something like, well, that's a tough one. Have you done Matthew 18 with him? That's a tough situation. Have you done Matthew 18 with her? In other words, have you sat down in a room and told them what the problem is? Because what you and I tend to do is if I have a problem with, with you, Rick, I have a problem with Rick, and that, you know, we've worked through a lot of stuff over the years, but if I, if I have a problem with you, I'm not to go talk to, to Dan about it. I'm maybe more comfortable with that because I can just sit down with Dan and talk about the things Rick did and the stuff Rick said and what a loser he is and all that, you know, and how I can't, I can't believe he doesn't know better. <coughs> the problem with that is then Rick doesn't even know I have a problem with him. So the, so the Bible says that is not how you address conflict. If you continue to address conflict that way, conflict doesn't go away. It actually gets worse. So in this passage in Matthew, Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, we know him as Apostle Peter, he hears this teaching, and he comes to Jesus looking for an out. I love that. And we criticize Peter uh, for a lot of things. And, uh, but don't we, don't we always approach Jesus' teaching looking for an out? But I'm the exception, right, Jesus? Because Well, let me tell you my story, because you haven't heard my story yet. So let me tell you my situation. This is why I think what you're asking me to do probably wouldn't work, and I'm really uncomfortable with it. So let me tell you why, so you can give me a pass on this. This is basically what Peter's saying. So let's just jump into Matthew 18. I'm going to put the verses on the screen. Here's what he says, Matthew 18, 21. Peter came to him, to Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? So you've asked this question, you know, because you've got a friend, you've got a child, you've got a spouse, you've got an ex-spouse, you've got a boss, you know. How often... Should I forgive someone who sins against me? And Peter says, I'm going to be generous here. Seven times? How many times have we had this conversation and then she just goes out and does it again? He just does it again. It's like right in my face. Am I just supposed to be a doormat? Is that what I'm supposed to be? Thankfully, Jesus says, verse 22, no, not seven times. You're like, whew, good. Oh, and, but 70 times seven. You're like, what? 490 times? I mean, how am I supposed to keep track of that? This is a big number. You know, this is a reference back, way, way back to the Old Testament. If you look back in Genesis chapter 4, the very beginning, after the first murder, after Cain murdered his brother Abel, one of Cain's descendants was in trouble. And he knew that God had said that anyone who killed Cain would be avenged sevenfold. That's what God said. And I don't, he says, I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And I don't know what that would have looked like, but Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, got into a situation. He ended up killing a man, and then he made his own claim that if anyone were to kill him in revenge, that he would be punished, punished 77 times. I don't understand God's reasoning with Cain. I don't know why he would protect him, what a, I don't, and I don't for sure know what a sevenfold punishment even looks like, but he's God, and I assume that he had something in mind there that's in his sovereignty and his power to do that. But with Lamech, 
He just proclaimed that anyone who tried to get revenge would be punished 77 times. And again, I don't know how that's determined. But that's what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 18. He says, remember what Lamech did? Because they knew the story. He says, I want you to do the opposite. And he knew people would be reeling from that. You're like, you mean I have to forgive again and again and again? So he says, let me try to explain this to you because this isn't meant to be a direct analogy. This is designed to show you what the kingdom of God is like because that's what the gospel of Matthew is all about. So here's what he says. He gives, he gives this parable, verse 23. Therefore, Jesus speaking, says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Can you imagine owing millions of dollars? Might be time for a little Dave Ramsey in your life. That's if you owe millions of dollars in your credit cards and you need some financial peace. But in reality, in the reality, this is a bit of an understatement. The figure used in Greek actually refers to a day's wages. Ready? For almost a hundred million day laborers. Works out to about nine billion dollars. It's crazy debt. And Jesus used this term on purpose. Uh, it's designed to be ridiculous and over the top. In other words, this guy owed so much it could never be repaid. That's what it says in the next verse, verse 25. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, <laughs> that he be sold, along with his wife and children, everything he owned, to pay the debt. And even though that wouldn't come close to paying the debt, no one's paying $9 billion for this guy and his family and all that they own, but there are consequences to your actions, and even though he can only come up with about $20,000 of the $9 billion, he's got to pay something. Verse 26, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. That's ridiculous. I don't know what kind of plan he had in mind. <laughs> then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. Before we go any further, a couple things. First of all, the moral of the story is not don't bother paying your debts. That's not the moral of the story, okay? The moral of the story is not beg for forgiveness and walk away. That's not the moral of the story. We're only partway through the story. So pay your debts, make your payments, pay your student loans, pay your medical bills, pay your child support, fulfill your financial obligations. That's what character people do. That's what Christians do. You've either received a product or a service. You've made choices that led you to owing someone money. Fulfill your obligations. Okay. Secondly, that was a side note. Secondly, Jesus is kind of going, Peter, Peter, since you asked the question, Peter, this is kind of what I'm doing for you. When I die on the cross, and I know you don't have any understanding of that, because you can't get your mind around that yet, and it's still kind of in the future, but when I die on the cross, this is what I'm going to do for you. Because your sin debt, Peter, is huge. Not because you're a horrible person, just because you're a human. And your sin is real. And your debt is huge. And I'm going to die so that you can be forgiven of the debt because I love you, Peter. The parable continues, verse 28. When the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're making minimum wage, if you're currently unemployed, you're between jobs, you're in a transition. All of us have the capacity to repay a couple thousand dollars. Given some time, all of us could repay that. So what's this guy uh, who's been forgiven a huge debt do? It says he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. He's like, I'll pay you back. Just give me a little more time. Be patient with me, he says. I'll repay it, he pleaded. And you and I know how the story should go. Okay, just forgive him because you've just been forgiven this massive, unpayable debt. So just forgive this guy. Verse 30. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Now, Jesus is telling a parable. A parable is a fictional story to make a point. Um, an untrue story to communicate truth. And you've got a reaction to it, right? 
Because we're like, that's terrible. This guy's a real jerk. He's a piece of work. Who would do that? Why would he do that? Jesus wanted us to see ourselves in this story. He wanted me to see me in this story, and he wanted you to see you in the story. Verse, 30, uh, verse 31. When some of the other uh, servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Before he had a chance to answer, then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he'd paid his entire debt. Verse 35, Jesus says, That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. You could wrestle with that for a while. That might bring up a few more big, hairy, audacious questions. See, Christian judgment betrays God's acceptance. Christians should be the most grateful, most radically forgiving people on the planet. You should be the most grateful person because Jesus died for you. I should be the most radically forgiving person on the planet because Jesus has forgiven me of a massive sin debt. God looked at my life and I fell short and he loved me and he forgave me and I should be running around telling people about this incredible, loving, forgiving Heavenly Father who invites me to call him Father. So we could just kind of end the message right there and say, go do likewise and it wouldn't be very helpful. Because you know this and you're like, okay, I'll try. I'll try really hard this week to be more grateful. I'll try to be more forgiving. But then we keep going back to Peter's question. Okay, but really, really, like how many times? Really? Because you don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. You don't know my boss. You don't know my ex. You don't know the situation I'm in. So are we enabling people now? Is that what we do? We just let them off the hook and we just enable them? This is problematic. Of course it's problematic. That's why most of us end up on the wrong side of judgment. Eventually you're going to ask, okay, Jesus, that's nice, little pie in the sky, little you know, wishful thinking there and unicorns and rainbows, but what about the real issues, Jesus? What about when people actually make poor moral choices? Do we say nothing? What about the person who keeps sinning against me? Do I say nothing? And how do I say something without being judgmental? Because we tend to have one of two poles. Some of us are very judgmental. We definitely lean that way. In fact, we run into these confrontational conversations Jesus is talking about because we love it. You know, like, I can't wait to let him know, and I'm going to blindside him. It's be like an ambush, and I'm going to, and we love that stuff. I'm not saying I do, but some people do. I, I, tend to, I tend to be on the truth side of the grace-truth equation. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't mind those conversations anymore. I'm not sure if I'm really wired that way, though. I think, don't think I am. I think more it's about just the, the role, the biblical leadership role that God has placed me in, in in local churches for 25 years has just required that I get used to it, and now it's kind of my default mode for me, you know, and I don't really, I, but I, I really don't know if, I'm, if it's a natural thing or if it's something I've learned, but uh, I, I just look at it like nobody's going to deal with a real issue. I'll deal with it. So just bring me your issues. I'll deal with them for you. It'll be great. Um, some of us are on the gray side. Some of you are on the gray side. You're like, issues? What issues? Oh, this is so lovely. Can't everybody just get along? Let's all just mind our own business and smile. The problem is when everybody's just trying to get along, sometimes truth is pushed to the side. 
and people ruin their lives. And sometimes they ruin other people's lives. And people hurt themselves and people hurt other people. So what about the real issues, Jesus? A couple thoughts. Number one, almost every Christian has a double standard. So I'll just let that sit there. You look around the room and figure out which, where you are in that percentage. Almost every Christian. You may be the exception. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to tell you right now what your double standard is, okay? Because I've been doing some research on you. Because we started a new ministry, like a private investigation team. And we had people lined up on their own waiting list to serve on that team. But um, I'm going to tell you what your double standard is. The same as my double standard, actually. Our double standard is simply this. Your sin is more serious than my sin. That's our double standard. It's like, yes, I have sin, but at least I'm not into that. Yeah, I got my own issues, but at least I don't have that. At least my thing's not affecting anyone else. At least I'm not parading it all over town and all over social media. So it says, wait, 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 wait. Run your life through this filter. Because my guess is that if you've got a problem with uh, judgment, this is how you think. You think that, you think, you know, that person's sin is more serious than my sin. And sometimes I'm so anxious to point out your sin that I forget about my sin. That might even be subconsciously why I do it. That's the double standard. That's where we naturally go unless we invite Jesus into our double standard. This is often where marriages go south. It's like every time you have a conversation, it's like, oh, I know, I know, I know, but you, well, yeah, I know, but you, and you, do, and you, and if you just, and if you would never, and if you would always, and if you would stop, because your thing is more serious than my thing. That's how you get into it with your spouse. That's how you get into it with your kids and with your ex and with some people at work. Well, your problem is more serious than my problem. Do you know what a healthy relationship looks like? It's this. Here's the problem I bring to the table. Ever start a conversation that way? Here's where I fall short in this situation. Try that in your marriage. Next time that you're really about to get into it, and you go, we really need to talk about this situation because here's how I blew it. Just try, I dare you try that. And when your spouse comes to, you'll have a very, you'll have a very different conversation. And it'll be honest, and it'll be judgment-free, and it'll be accusation-free, and it will change the tone of the entire conversation. You know tone is kind of a big deal in marriage, conversations within marriage? And maybe something good will be accomplished. But this is our default, that your sin's more serious than my sin. And thankfully, the Bible addresses this. And we're uh, going to look at this uh, second passage of Scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As the early church tried to figure out the implications of these real-life situations and the, the, the implications of Jesus' radical teaching, which sounded great when you're sitting out in a field listening to him, but when you have to actually do life with people, and then you've got to lead a church and figure out what church looks like in the first century, very quickly, the early church leaders uh, became known for, for being the most generous, gracious, accepting, kind, forgiving community in the first century. It's one of the reasons it spreads so widely and so quickly. Maybe the, the, uh, the other side of that might be why we don't see churches exploding with growth in North America. Because maybe we aren't the most generous, gracious, accepting, kind, forgiving communities. Anyway, 
as they were trying to figure out the same issues that you and I are trying to figure out about this, this church in Corinth couldn't quite get it right. And so Paul wrote a letter to straighten things out. And he's like, wait a minute, I need to step in here and clarify some things. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. He's writing to a church. He said, it isn't my, that is, as a Christian, this is Christians only, okay, remember? It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Stop. Church, it is not our responsibility to judge non-Christians. If you're wondering why so many non-church people have a bad taste in their mouths about Christianity, it is because Christians take a detour around Paul's instruction here, and we judge outsiders. And we've done this for generations. And Christians who look at non-Christians, and they say with their placards and their bumper stickers and their Facebook memes and their status and their sharing pithy sayings, and they're saying, you shouldn't be fill in the blank. This is irrefutably unbiblical, that approach. You and I should never try to hold people who are not Christians accountable to a biblical standard. In fact, as non-Christians, they're probably, when we do that, as non-Christians, they're probably acting more consistently with their value systems than we are. And Paul says, stop judging outsiders. Stop judging your non-Christian co-workers. Stop judging your non-Christian family member. Here's one, here's one, ready? Stop judging your non-Christian legislator, congressman, senator, whatever. Oh, the political season is already cranked up, and I'm so excited about it. <laughs> Stop judging people who are not Christians and who don't behave like Christians, who don't think like Christians because they're not Christians. That doesn't even make sense. Why do we hold non-Christians to Christian standards? And we don't want to hear this because we're pretty good at this. This is easy. It's like a form of entertainment for some of us. Verse 12. Uh, it is, I'm going to start at the beginning. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. But what about that person I just find annoying? No. Nope. No. It's your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And we don't do a very good job of that, do we? Because there are acceptable church sins. I got a long list of those. You probably do too. Gossip? When was the last time we really confronted a gossip? Really? Well, between you and me. Oh, right. When was the last time you even said, well, I'm just not going to, I don't want to know, don't finish that sentence? You know, I, I just, I, we just let it go, don't we? We don't judge gluttony in the church. Oh, and by the way, gluttony is a whole lot more than just overeating. That's part of it. We celebrate it. We enable it. We excuse it. We post pictures of it. It is your responsibility. It is my responsibility to judge. We're going to come back to this word because we need to really define what that means because it's confusing. But it is our responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And some of you are like, here we go. I've been judged in the church. I was an insider. I got judged. It was terrible. Verse 13, God will judge those on the outside. <laughs> if you're worried about the world going to hell, if you're worried about our country abandoning its Christian values, if you think it's your place to straighten out all your non-Christian friends about the way America should be, let's get back to the way America used to be. Okay, I'm going to go here. Do you mean the good old days in America? Is that what you're talking about? The good old days? 
I, I can't figure out when the good old days were. Was that, how far back do we go? Was that when a man could own another man like a piece of property just because of the colors of, of his skin? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Those are the good old days? Because we were a Christian nation then, right? Think about that. Oh, oh, we're not talking that far. We're talking about, oh, we're talking about that era when women were, were second-class citizens and they could have certain jobs and they could make less money and pay taxes, but they couldn't have a vote. Is that what you're talking about? Because we were a Christian nation then, right? I'm a, bit, a little cynical maybe, but are you talking about 100 years after the Civil War when blacks still couldn't drink out of the same water fountain as whites? When blacks couldn't even shop in the same, certain stores or live in certain neighborhoods? Or are we talking about when our Supreme Court ruled that it's perfectly legal to kill an unborn child? And when we looked at the other way, at horrible atrocities and widespread genocide in places like Africa because it wasn't in our national security interests. And now, oh my, this summer, whoa, we've been really worked up about our Supreme Court, and they have officially redefined marriage. It's the end of civilization as we know it. Just, uh, that's what I've heard. And nobody said a word. I, didn't, I don't remember hearing a word. Nobody said a word about this a few years ago in the United States Congress mandated that every state adopt legislation making no-fault divorce the law of the land. I would argue that that's when the definition of marriage changed. And it wasn't done by unelected, lifetime-appointed judges. It was enacted by elected lawmakers who Christians keep electing. But aren't we quick to climb up on our soapbox, especially on social media, and condemn people that we've elected, and condemn people that we live and work with, and somehow holding them to a standard that Paul says we're not to hold them to. He said God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. That is sometimes in the context of the local church, you need to remove or separate from the person who's caught up in destructive, ongoing sin pattern. We usually do this backwards. So what's this whole idea, what, what, what's Paul saying here, that, that we're supposed to judge? Because I like to sign up for that. I think there's a distinction between judgment and discernment. Judgment versus discernment. Let's talk about that. Because this has helped me figure this out in the last 25 plus years of leadership in the local church, and I still get this wrong a lot. And when you read your Bible, the issue of judgment, it says, first of all, that judgment belongs to God. Because here's the deal. Human judgment is usually destructive and distorted. Human judgment is usually destructive and distorted. When I judge someone, it usually hurts them. They're not better off. It's usually distorted because I don't see things perfectly. Human judgment is almost never helpful, but discernment can be. And I think when we're dealing with insiders... Okay? With other believers, we do this thing we call church together with. Our discernment, our judgment, it simply means to decide. Not, but to judge has such a negative connotation. When you go, but when you go back to the Greek, it's, it's more discernment than it is pronouncing judgment as we think judgment. Discernment is helpful and restorative. That's a key word. Some of you have benefited from Christian discernment. Here's the irony of the church world. It's a paradox for me. The church is the place where most of us have felt the most judged. And the church is the place where I have been helped the most. Isn't that true for you too? If you've only been judged in the church, I'm so sorry. 
because there's help and there's restoration in the church too. Discernment. When I exercise discernment prayerfully, it's always helpful and restorative. So when you go to address something, because remember Matthew 18, Jesus said you should address sin. You should go directly to the person. Ask yourself, is this judgment? Because if it's judgment, it's going to be destructive and distorted. And that's why, that's why you hate being judged, because it's destructive and distorted. Or is this conversation I'm about to have, is it discernment? Because discernment will be helpful and restorative. I've had friends exercise both judgment and discernment in my life, and I love discernment. Discernment is helpful. Judgment, not so much. So maybe you're wondering then, how do I stop judging? Here are a couple other distinctions we could make that might help you if you're a judger. First of all, we've got to make a distinction between ministry and theology. Ministry is the only word I could kind of come up with there, but ministry is when you're trying to help someone, when you're trying to help them through a particular situation or you're trying to help them in their weakness. Then there's theology. Theology is what you believe about God. Here's something that'll maybe blow you off your seat, that Jesus always put ministry ahead of theology. That's why he was so radical. That's why he freaked people out. That's why the religious leaders didn't know what to make of him. That's why they saw Jesus interacting with a person who never worshipped at the temple, who didn't attend synagogue, who didn't have any religious beliefs, and they'd be like freaked out, and they're like, you know, you can't talk to him, you can't talk to her, you, can't, you definitely can't talk to her, she's a woman, what do you, you can't talk to her, not in the light of day, and Jesus would have had these conversations with, he had them with women and with lepers and with beggars and prostitutes and tax collectors and traders and all the social outcasts, that was his ministry, he was influencing them. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you'll see when it came to outsiders, Jesus always put ministry to others ahead of theology. He always had time for the person who was lost. He always had time for the person who was confused. He always had room for the person who needed healing. And he didn't start with, well, don't you know anything about God? Don't you know that your lifestyle led you to this? Don't you know your sinful choices have led you? No, that's theology. Judges put theology before ministry. Judges put theology before ministry because they won't associate with that person because of their lifestyle. They won't associate with this particular person because of their sinful choices. And they look at someone else's life and they jump to conclusions. And they put them in a category. And some church people are pros at this. And if you're a pro at this, you just need to know that Jesus did the opposite. He put ministry before theology. He would end with theology. He would often bring theology into the discussion, into that interaction. He would bring them around to a proper view of who God is, showing them through his actions what God is really like, who he is and what he's said. After he'd established a relationship, after he'd served them, then he'd bring theology into the conversation. He'd talk about God's standard and how we can obey him. Because Jesus knew that intolerance destroys influence. If you're intolerant of people, maybe you're one of those people who looks out the window or gets on Facebook and loves to listen to preachers who are like, you know, look at those people, look at how they're sinning and they're so sinful and look how far away they are from God and they're such a disgrace and they're terrible human beings and let's lump them all into a couple categories and the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and I love that expression, I don't even know what it means, but just know if that's your approach, if, if, you have, if that's your approach, you will have zero influence on any actual people. 
Because nobody wants to be around that. For sure, nobody on the outside wants to be around that. Intolerance destroys influence. When I become intolerant, I destroy any influence I have. And Jesus may not have tolerated the sin, and he didn't. He died for it. But he loved the person. He loved them with his words, and he loved them with his actions. And they allowed him, as a result, they allowed him to have influence. I love how... uh, Reggie Joyner says, he says it this way, he says, if your beliefs cause you to treat people in a wrong way, something's wrong with your beliefs. Because at the corner, the, the cornerstone of Christianity is love God, love others. So how do I stop judging? Here's where we get really practical. First of all, pray for the people you judge. Hmm. God, you really need to change them because they're really rotten, sinful people. And that's not what I meant. <laughs> what I've discovered is that it's almost impossible for me to continue to judge someone who I am sincerely praying for. Because then you don't want to be destructive. You want to be helpful. You want to be part of the solution, not the one who points out all the problems. <clears throat> So if you're judging someone, if you really struggle with judging someone or people group or whatever, you need to get on your knees and pray for them. Pray for the people you judge because the more sincerely you pray for them, the more invested you are in prayer for them, the harder it will be for you to judge them. And the easier it will be for you to offer biblical discernment in place of judgment to help bring healing and restoration. Second way to help us stop judging is to remember this, that Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. We don't usually say it that way. We usually say Jesus loved people who were nothing like him. And I've just chosen to use the word liked in there because I think he liked them too. He liked people who were nothing like him. There are entire people groups that have been so hurt by the church. And I'm not just talking about ancient history or even 200 years ago or 100 years ago. I'm talking about within our lifetime, present day. I just want you to know that if you've been judged by the church, Jesus would have liked you. He would have been happy to spend some time with you. Because Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And apparently Jesus had no trouble loving people who didn't yet love him. He would say to people who are far from God, would you just come with me and let's hang out for a while. Let's get to know each other. And the religious people who put theology before ministry, like, oh no, you can't do that because you don't, you know that about them. They're, you know... But Jesus knew that unconditional acceptance paves the way for unconditional surrender. Unconditional acceptance paves the way for unconditional surrender. People are acceptance magnets. We are. We gravitate most to the people who accept us most. And you trust most the people who accept you most. If you accept me, I will eventually trust you. I will trust you, and I will trust that you want what's best for me. So this is how we stop judging. So... When Christians judge, where do people go? I mean, this, this, this is what happened to some of you at some point in your church experience, for those of you who spent some time away from the church, where you opened up to a Christian and then you felt judged and maybe you had an issue in your life that you know wasn't right or you even, you, maybe you even knew it was sin, but you couldn't be around Christians because they just made it clear to you over and over again and they were judging you. So where'd you go? You went to all the wrong places. 
And who do people talk to? Well, who do you talk to when you feel judged? You talk to all the wrong people. The people you thought would help you, the people that you were looking to for guidance, for answers, for help, you know, Christians, people from church, and they hurt you. I think the church should be the safest place in the world for people struggling with life issues. If your life is not in a place where you want it to be, if you know there's some stuff out of whack there and you've got stuff you're struggling with and you've got issues to work out, the church should be the safest place in the world for people struggling with life's issues. And at Faith Community, you just need to know this, your pastors, your elders, the ministry team leaders, we're going to do everything we can to make it so. And we'll be criticized by people in other churches for being soft on sin. I know we will because we have. And we'll be criticized for looking the other way when it comes to certain kinds of sin. And it will make some church people uncomfortable. But we're committed to making sure this place is a safe place for people struggling with life issues. So, if you're a judger, how do you respond? I would say instead of putting your theology first, why not put ministry first and theology second? Put people first. Your communication with those people about God and what God is like and what God thinks about it, that'll come. Just put people first. When you are given the opportunity to respond, say something like, well, I'm glad you told me that. So glad you told me. That took a lot of courage to talk about. I'm honored that you shared that with me. You trusted me with that. Oh, 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 oh. And I have issues too. I got stuff that I carry around and that I struggle with. Mine might look different from yours, but I got issues too and I got stuff I struggle with. Oh, and good news, we have an amazing, loving, forgiving Heavenly Father. And then you walk the road together. And just remember that our judgment betrays God's acceptance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this truth is like earthquake level for some of us. I mean, we, we have been judges, and we're the ones in need of forgiveness. For those in this room that have felt judged by the church and felt judgment from Christians, God, let them know that that judgment betrayed your acceptance. that that judgment wasn't at all a reflection of who you are. Father, we come to you with our struggles, with our fears, with our shortcomings, with our prejudices, with our judgmental attitudes. And we're grateful that you love us and accept us. Do work in each of us as individuals so that this church may be the kind of place where we can have these conversations so we can be the safest place for people to struggle with life's issues. May that be true of us as a church, as households, and as individuals. We want to be true reflections of our Heavenly Father's acceptance. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to this.
There is no guilt here. There is no shame. No pointing fingers. There is no blame. What happened yesterday has disappeared. The dirt has washed away, and now it's clear. There's only grace. There's only love. There's only mercy, and believe me, it's enough. Your sins are gone without a trace, and there's nothing left now. There's only Starting over now under the sun, and you're stepping forward now. A new life has begun. Your new life has begun. And there's only grace. And there's only love. There's only mercy, and believe me, it's enough. It's inside. Nothing left now, and there's all. 